The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language. You know the drill. Tuesday, the 24th of October, 2017. A random man shares his fear, a fear we all share. What guarantee has he got that he's not being hacked in this very moment? Nicholas Fryer makes life more enjoyable. If you've never done this... In all seriousness, you really must, because there genuinely isn't enough innocent wonder at the beauty of the world. And here's a bit of it for you, entirely free. And you know that end-of-the-world thing we've been talking about? The U.S. Air Force preparing to put its nuclear-armed B-52 bombers on alert for the first time since the end of the Cold War. The Cold War, that all turned out okay, so what's the worry? This is the 9pm Hallucinating Goldfish. So the last um, few episodes of this podcast, uh, ignoring the one about the nut job anti-lesbian pastor that we had, that's Pastor P-A-S-T-O-R, not Pastor P-A-S-T-A. Although I suppose you could have a kind of anti-lesbian linguini. I'll leave you to work out the joke there for yourself. But we've had the 9pm end of the world probably – the 9pm end of the world, definitely, and the 9pm end of the world, but more so. And as time marches on, it's good to know that we've had all these warnings because now we're prepared for the end of the world, right? And Donald Trump is certainly prepared for the end of the world. We're prepared for anything. We are so prepared like you wouldn't believe. You would be shocked to see how totally prepared we are. I don't know that I would be that shocked, but I'll come back to that. Now, at the top of my uh, Twitter profile, my website, a whole lot of things. I have a a standard phrase or a couple of standard phrases. All hell, Eris, vive la poissons rouge sauvage. And I don't think I've ever explained them on this podcast, so... uh, so let's give it a go. Um, all hell eras. Discordian, the universe is chaos. There are all, I mean, there, there are people who think that the universe is, is I don't know, ruled by rules and laws and uh, that society can be controlled in some way. I mean, that's, that's clearly bullshit. Everything is chaos and, you know, even the, the laws of thermodynamics tell you that everything goes towards maximum entropy, maximum chaos. So you might as well embrace that, accept that that is the natural state of the universe. I just go with it. Uh, Eris was the goddess of discord. Look this up for yourself. All hail Eris. Now, vive la poissance rue sauvage. That's French for long live the feral goldfish. Uh, the French are weird. The French think goldfish are red. Or if you prefer, the English think redfish are gold. Since I'm English and uh, – or I speak English. I'm not English, although part of my ancestry is some sort of dodgy tradesman who came out to the colonies in 1838 from memory. Because I speak English, I'm obviously better than everyone else in the world. There's no argument about that, is there? So let's just assume the French are wrong. Goldfish are gold, not red. 
When I um, first wrote the description for this podcast back oh, a few years ago now, um, here's what I wrote. I said, most news outlets drive me mad, and this next bit will date it a bit. I don't care about some golfer's sex life or Tony Abbott's speedos. I don't need to be told some event is shocking. I'll experience my own genuine emotional reaction once I learn the facts. I, it, I'm going off quote here, but yeah, shocking news. You know, I, I, just tell me the news and I'll be shocked, right? Why are you telling me that I'll be shocked? You know, oh. okay. Now, remember words like snowmageddon? That dates it too. Okay, I don't help because I talk about refrigerageddon and other such uh, terrible scenarios that the Internet of Things will bring us. Um, but, you know, look at what's in the news. I don't give a toss about sport. That's fine. It, people who do like sport, enjoy it. Go for it. But it shouldn't be in the thing called news. And I don't want to live in the paranoid land of the hallucinating goldfish, that's what I wrote, a land of imaginary terrorists and crime waves and fear. And how I described this podcast then was, quote, as I see and read and hear more news throughout the course of the day and as the second or third glass of wine is drunk, my Twitter stream fills with complaints and anger and snark. By the end of the day, I'm stabby. I would like to share that stabbiness. I I, I think the podcast has, broadly speaking, lived up to uh, that description. Now, uh, Bernard Keane, who's political editor of Crikey, uh, has been a colleague off and on for some time, noted that political news lived in what he called the perpetual present, that everything is about what's happening in the daily news cycle. And very rarely do you notice that a year before, two years before, five years before, ten years before, there was a kind of different reality happening. Uh, George Orwell obviously uh, wrote about this in in his uh, well-known novel, 1984. You know, the the famous bit where the the chocolate ration goes up, says the headline, even though in fact it's gone down because you don't refer to what happened in the past. You just say, hey, the chocolate ration is up to whatever the new value is, and everyone just believes you. So Bernard called that the perpetual present. I I call that the goldfish part of the hallucinating goldfish. We simply don't refer back to the past, past events, past experiences. We just absorb what is said to us uh, as it comes through the news. We, we don't look back. We don't have time to look back. Journalists used to have a little more time to look back. Now they don't. They're pumping out, you know, six or eight stories a day plus uh, sub-editing all of their colleagues. Just copy and paste the quotes, press, publish. That's really 95, 96.4% of all news by weight is just copy and paste. Prove me wrong. The hallucinating part comes from the fact that I reckon our societies, well, they're hallucinating. They're actually suffering paranoid schizophrenic hallucinations. We don't act upon real data connect, uh, collected from the real world. We act upon this constructed paranoid fantasy of the world 
and then respond to that. So our tabloid, our tabloid media, for example, they report every threat, every scary adjective gets loaded into that, and the world is constantly a threatening place. The politicians react to that because, you know, frightened people will suspend rational thought. They'll demand that something be done. Doesn't matter what. Just do something. Oh, good, you're doing something about this threat. Doesn't matter whether it's something that, that has been proven to work or not work or whatever. And I don't know whether you've noticed this, but politicians sometimes help along this process by creating new imaginary threats for us to be afraid of. Take a headline, wild teen crime wave. But where, what, how many people? Um, Look at the figures, you'll see that we're the safest we've ever been. Children are safer than ever before. I don't need to tell you about that because I've told you about that before and you have listened to every single podcast, haven't you? And you've remembered every single word I've ever told you because that's what you have to do. Follow your instructions, people. So that continual state of hallucinatory paranoia hallucinatory paranoia, is made worse by that lack of long-term memory. I mean, societies do try things over the years, right? And sometimes they work, sometimes they don't work. But we don't seem to notice that things we've tried in the past don't work. We just try them again. So when I wrote about this a few years ago, and and look, when I eventually... Uh, post the podcast webpage, uh, you'll see links to all this stuff. But when I first wrote about my, my hallucinating goldfish uh, concept, uh, I noticed that at that, that stage, investors were pouring millions of dollars into what were called then, and this dates it a bit, Web 2.0 businesses. <laughs> we're still doing that, right? I don't know what number we're up to. We've stopped talking about numbers. We just label them with buzzwords now. But into all of these businesses, pour the millions of dollars. No one understands the businesses. It's all about what buzzwords they have. Even though the the lessons of the first dot-com boom and the bubble and its burst were pretty damn obvious. But off we go through that again. When we, de- uh, when we designed mainframe computers, we eventually learned that security was kind of important. You couldn't graft it on as a feature afterwards. And then we connected PCs to the internet with fundamentally insecure operating systems like Windows and the original Mac OS for that matter. And we were surprised when they got hacked. We started connecting smartphones to the internet and then we were surprised when they got hacked. And then Well, TVs to the internet, the internet of things. Surprise, surprise, they're being hacked. Just how fucking stupid are us human beings? Hello, I'm Stilgarian. Welcome to The Edict. The other day... The other day I was looking at my notes for a client proposal and have you, has your handwriting turned to shit? I mean, I look back at some of my handwriting from when I was at university back shortly before the Boer War and 
like I wrote with a yeah like all right I was a nerd but I wrote with a fountain pen it was it was a thing of I was about to say a thing of calligraphic beauty let's not get carried away here but it was kind of all right all right I kind of did all right and now my my handwriting is so bad I can't even read it myself I was looking at these notes and it said it said fixed price legumes and Perpetual milkshake, it seemed to be. I I don't get it. How's your handwriting? I think I'm going to be talking about uh, President, <laughs> President Donald Trump a bit in the podcast tonight. You, you can't really get away from talking about Trump. It's, it's the, the kind of continuous train wreck that keeps on giving, right? How... How do you start? And, and look, a, a year or two ago, a couple of years ago now, I suppose, I became obsessed with the then uh, Prime Minister of Australia, Crusader Rabbit. And I spent, in, in hindsight, probably far too much of this podcast uh, reflecting upon how strange and, and annoying he was. Now, he's still being strange and annoying, so, but, he, but he's not Prime Minister, so we can kind of relegate him to the irrelevant pile. But Donald Trump... I, I, I mean, you have to be fascinated by it because he's he's the man with the finger on the button or the, the laminated card in his jacket pocket or, or whatever the actual reality uh, of it all is. Obviously, we've got things happening in Britain that are a bit weird. We've got things happening in Europe which are a bit weird. We've got wars all over the place. Uh, some US service people were, were killed in Niger in Africa and suddenly we go, hang, hang on, what, what are... What are approximately a thousand people, a um, thousand American service people doing in Niger? What's going on there? Do you know? Because I don't fucking know. Does anyone know? A few came back in in coffins recently, and and as we know, Donald Trump was uh, very sensitive in his handling of that, wasn't he? He he really made the 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 families and loved ones of those those soldiers uh, feel feel so much better. One of the observers of all this uh, that I have been really enjoying of late is uh, Jonathan Pye. If you do not know the character Jonathan Pye, uh, find him on YouTube, P-I-E for Pye. Uh, he, he does these to camera pieces, which uh, the conceit, the conceit is uh, that he's um, a journalist doing reports from out in the field, straight to camera live, uh, but in between takes, he rants and gives his personal opinion uh, to his his producer or production assistant, who who uh, you know he can hear in his his earpiece, as they say, his piece of ear. Now, the most recent of these, uh, in the most recent of these, Jonathan Pye uh, did reflect upon uh, Donald Trump and the way he had. Uh, handled a number of things, including uh, talking to uh, the widow of a dead soldier. He doesn't know how the office of the president works. He doesn't, he doesn't even know which bits of the map his presidency covers. He doesn't, he doesn't understand the law, the constitution. He doesn't know how international nuclear treaties work. He doesn't understand how Congress works. Not because he's particularly thick, but because he just simply doesn't care. He just doesn't care. 
He's asked if he has contacted the relatives of dead soldiers, a deeply regrettable but nonetheless almost inevitable part of being commander-in-chief. And he's, 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 he's I, I sent letters, I, I sent letters. You, you can see the lying. You can see, I make phone, I make the best phone calls. You can see the lies. You can see them. The, the letters, they're, yeah, they're going out, they, they're going out yesterday, today, maybe tomorrow. They went out last Wednesday. We're, we're going to send them now. We're going to send them now. And, I mean, all this proves, you know what this, this tells you? In the Trump White House, there's no one in charge of dealing with letters to dead soldiers' families. No system in place for that. In, in a White House run by a man who dares lecture people about disrespecting the flag. He's, 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 I got, I got it, I got it, I found the words. He's a cunt. There you go. He's a cunt. What? I, I know it's offensive. Good. It's, it's meant to be offensive, Tim. If there's a more offensive word, please let me know, because I'd be happy to call him that too. Because whatever the word is, he'll be that too. Whatever the word. If the word is worse than cunt, then it will be appropriate to describe Donald Trump that way. You know, no matter how offensive the word, it won't ever be as offensive as lying about being the best at phoning the parents of dead soldiers or joking about hanging gay people. He's got a point. And you know who else is a cunt? Milo Yiannopoulos is a cunt. And you know who else is a... Oh, we'll be here all night. I'd better move on. The other thing that... The other thing, one of the other things that has been shitting me off this week, and can I just say, I'm noticing on the uh, the Twitter stream, you can uh, follow along with the hashtag 9pm live, some of you seem to have lost the thread. That just tells me you are not listening close enough. That's your problem. It is your failure in the world. One of the things that irritates me about the internet, about the world in general, are uh, the the kind of saccharine, what are they called, motivating comments, little motivating things, and they come out of the startup community like piss out of a geriatric a dog, I don't know. Um, I saw one the other day, uh, and I, I won't name the person, because, you know, they clearly have enough to deal with in their life. But their their line was, the biggest risk isn't occasional failure, it's sustained mediocrity. I can see the news story now. In breaking news, more than 300 people are missing, presumed dead after Bland Air Flight 55 suffered mediocrity over the North Atlantic. What, what, What the fuck are these people thinking? Clearly got too much time on their hands. I I do have some time on my hands when I'm I'm dreaming. One of the things about my particular uh, medication regime at the moment is that I have um, long, vivid and uh, uh, dreams that I can then remember. And an example of that. Uh, just recently, was that I, I I dreamed we, we, I don't know who we is, we, a number of people, including myself, were with Barack Obama. And a nearby town had like a three for two gelato offer. So <laughs> that's right, you know, more gelato. So to get there, uh, we assembled a uh, an aircraft out of bamboo and paper because that was the thing in the dream. 
Um, I don't know about your dreams. Mine are excellent. Did you know? Did you know? Here's look. If you're not keeping track, it's right here in my notes. It's the next paragraph in my notes. That's what links this all together. These paragraphs are copied and pasted into my notes. Did you know that you can now get potty training devices for your son to ensure that he learns to pee like a man? I, I kid you not. Uh, I, I Again, I, if I had a a producer or a production assistant, I'd get them to uh, do the tweets of these images as I'm going along uh, with the live recording, but uh, you'll have to come back later and have a look at the, the web page for all of the, the links. But you know how most, well, you, if you don't have kids, you may not know this or you, you may well have forgotten your own experience with potty training equipment, unless, no. But the, they mainly consist of a like a thing that you, you learn to sit on and do your business, right? But apparently there are some people, and I believe that they're in the United States of America, there's a, a, a bit of news that will shock you, absolutely shock you, uh, that are concerned that learning to pee sitting down will, will mean your boy will not grow up to be a proper man, obviously. So they've they've created this this thing which looks like a, a miniature urinal thing, but it's it's shaped like a frog with an open mouth. So essentially, you teach your son to piss in the mouth of a frog, and to make sure that he gets the right spot. There's a little paddle wheel in the bottom. So it's gamified, if you like, in the sense that what his aim is, excuse the pun, is to aim at the right spot on the paddle so that the the stream of golden fluid causes a little paddle wheel to spin and he goes, yeah, 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 I'm learning to pee, mummy. Or daddy. I suspect it's more daddy who's concerned about his son not being able to pee like a man. You can tell this is a, a, a men's invention, can't you? Now, back in the Victoria era, and, and some modern uh, uh, urinals have the same thing. Uh, bear with me, ladies. But um, there is at a particular spot at at the back of the chamber of reception, as it were, a little on the porcelain, there's a little picture of a bee. See, that's your target point. Same... As as the sun in this thing uh, has to hit the paddle wheel, and that's the spot where if you aim at that spot, you'll get less splashback. Because let's face it, when gentlemen are in a condition when they're not paying a whole lot of attention to splashback issues, particularly at licensed premises, um, it can be a bit unsavoury. So the idea is you you aim at the bee and the key thing here is that of course the latin for bee is apis a-p-i-s so clever the victorians now some modern urinals have a picture of a fly not a bee so they're completely missing the point so what i want you to do apart from all the other things i want you to do is 
tell me about urinals that have provided the wrong kind of insect. Also, do tell me uh, if you've uh, had your son try one of these piss-in-the-mouth-of-the-frog potty training devices, and I want you to to just think about this for a while and and tell me whether you really want to train your children into making pissing into a game. The key word here, obviously, is Cronulla Sharks. Telstra is uh, one of Australia's largest companies. It's the biggest telecommunications company in Australia. It's the one, uh, like, every... every, Oh, fuck, I've just dropped my pen. Hang hang on a bit. Um, It's important that... Okay, I'm not... I'm not Kerry O'Brien, but it's fairly important that I have a a pen in my hand so I can uh, punctuate my thoughts. I'll tell you about that another time. Telstra is, uh, as I say, one of Australia's largest companies. Like a lot of the big telcos, it originally started as a government-owned entity and and in a similar way to uh, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, uh, it was originally the PMG, the Postmaster General's Department, because, of course, telephones uh, grew out of telegraphs and telegraphs were just a uh, a kind of electric letter. I'm sounding a lot like uh, Australia's Attorney General, uh, Senator George uh, Soap the Ankle Brandis, uh, which is a bit of a worry, um, but I shall move on. Uh, and then the PMG became Telecom Australia and then Telecom Australia became Telstra and sold off. Now, something that business and uh, technology journalists love are the annual Telstra sh- – oh, what the annual general meetings of Telstra. I'll edit that bit out. One of the things that uh, technology and business journalists love are Telstra's annual general meetings because, of course, like any public company, a shareholder can roll along and ask questions of the, uh, the board of directors and senior management. And because of the history of Telstra, bunches of shares are owned by, shall we say, ordinary people and that smug category known as self-funded retirees. And that's because the idea of, of investing in what was, you know, the reliable national telecommunications provider was was seen as a, a good thing to invest in. <laughs> yeah, well, they soon learnt that. And... Uh, and a lot of Australians who had never investi- uh, invested in the share market before invested in Telstra. So they turn up to the, the annual general meeting and they ask questions. And these are people who know well, essentially fuck all about business, let alone about the telecommunications industry. And, and quite frankly, it's really like a nice day out and there are free sandwiches. So it's, it's always amusing. Uh, my commissioning editor uh, at ZDNet, uh, Mr. Christopher Duckett, uh, found a wonderful, wonderful audience question from uh, this year's Telstra AGM just a couple of weeks ago. And uh, look, it, it starts slowly, but boy, does it warm up. Mr. Chairman, CEO and fellow board members, 
All of us are worried about unemployment for our children or grandchildren. Now, one area that's a huge demand at the moment is someone that's an expert in stopping your computer system from being hacked, cyber security. And it's quite interesting that you look at the, one of the most popular TV programs in Australia at the moment is Border Security. There's Border, Border Security Australia, Border Security New Zealand, Canada. Uh, millions of Australians love Border Security. What I would like to see Telstra do is lead a national think tank involving all experts in all the telco companies to solve the problem of security, cyber security, hacking, fraud on a national basis so that Australia becomes, if we're an island continent, we secure our borders from international hacking, fraud, cyber security. We guarantee it for all our customers. Now, who is asking for this? Government departments. Defence, federal, state, local government, they're all worried about how secure their, their um, computers are. Private enterprise, the home, the home, this, this fine gentleman here, just how secure is this laptop computer? What guarantee has he got that he's not being hacked in this very moment? So there's a huge opportunity for you. You can make billions out of solving the problem. We can lead the world. And if you want me to give an example of how terrible it is, look at the US presidential election. The Russians hacked into millions of computers, is the allegation, influencing millions of Americans. So that gives an example of where you can go in the future. Thank you, Mr Chairman. Thank you, Mr Chairman. I don't have the heart to tell him that uh, that cybersecurity is actually one of Telstra's uh, fastest growing businesses and that uh, the idea of having a think tank, as it were, we already have quite a few looking at that. But, uh, yes, if you, if you essentially have no life, and and would like to uh, uh, to wish you'd thought of other things, the Telstra AGM. And now here's Nicholas Fryer with a look through the arch window. A couple of weeks ago, on an arts program on the ABC, some talking head, well, it was the radio, but one assumes head, well, the point Professor Polonek was making was that in this age of YouTube beheadings and other virtual reality atrocities, art can no longer shock its audience the way it used to. Which sounded to me like a goddamn challenge, and back up a bit, because I'm going to give this thing a whirl. But bear with me here, because first I'm going to get a bit Martin Gardner on you. Anyone who doesn't know what a Klein bottle is should Google an image of one now. For those who don't have reliable access to the internet, Australians, for example, a Klein bottle is an example of a three-dimensional, non-orientable surface. It has only one face. Its inside and its outside are one and the same thing. If you take a wine bottle and bend its neck so that it goes back in through the wall and then it opens out to become the... I'll just look it up. This bit doesn't work very well on radio. A two-dimensional analogue of a Klein bottle is the Merbius strip. 
Anybody who already knows absolutely everything about Mobius strips can skip ahead about a minute 30. But for those who don't, stick with me, because it's going to get potentially very interesting and quite nice. If you take a long, thin, rectangular piece of paper and loop it back on itself, you get a dog collar, just like Father Barnaby used to wear back at the home. If instead you give it one twist before sticky-taping the ends together, you get a Mobius strip. It has the curious property of having only one face. If you run a finger along the middle of the strip, you will eventually get back to where you started. If you use a pen instead of a finger, you'll see that in doing so you'll have traversed both sides of the strip in the one journey, because there is in fact only one side. The next thing you should definitely do is take a pair of scissors and cut all the way along the line you've just drawn to slice the strip in half, lengthways, as it were. If you've never done this, in all seriousness you really must, because there genuinely isn't enough innocent wonder at the beauty of the world, and here's a bit of it for you, entirely free. When you've finished laughing and saying, fuck me, would you look at that, try the same thing with a line drawn, not down the middle, but one third of the way in from the edge. Either edge, there is only one edge, just draw the line all the way along and then cut along it, and you're welcome. Show your kids. Get them to predict beforehand what will happen. If any of them gets it right, you've got a future Fields Medal winner on your hands right there, and I'll swap you for the stupid one of my kids any time you like. But back, reluctantly, to reality. Perhaps the most interesting aspect of the internet age in these emotionally stunted, posturing teenage years of the 21st century is the ability of each of us to create one's own media reality, insulated from annoying trivia like countervailing opinions or the laws of physics. That this has, within a single generation, made either ecological collapse or the gas chambers an inevitability is very exciting, and it does call for an artistic response. And in this age of Brexit and Trump, the only appropriate medium seems to me to be self-mutilation. With that in mind, I briefly dandled on my knee the suggestion that I have myself looped around with a twist and have my mouth sewn onto my own backside, creating a sort of one-man Mobius centipede, a one-sided and completely self-fertilizing ecosystem, all of my very own. However, as the perfect symbol of humanity today, it lacks the crucial element of being repellently nauseating to every sane and adult onlooker. Hence, the Klein bottle. By means of a little abdominal surgery, I shall render my internal and external surfaces one and the same. Thus transformed, if you were to run your finger all the way along my gastrointestinal tract, just like Father Barnaby used to do back at the home, you will eventually traverse both my insides and outsides in the one unbroken journey. Some of the possibilities may already have occurred to you. I should, with appropriate contortions, be able to externalise my stomach lining, presenting truly novel opportunities for revulsion. Mere sexual molestation will be passé. I'll be able to sidle up to women in lifts and just digest them where they stand. Check out the YouTube channel and please leave a review on iTunes. With enough likes, I can forge a career in the entertainment industry. Or, if that fails... Just get a job in Hollywood.
One of my uh, favourite breweries at the moment is the Founders Brewery in Grand Rapids, Michigan, for reasons uh, that are known only to the local publicans in Katoomba or the publican of the old city bank. Uh, They're quite often putting... um, Founders Brewery products on tap, and I commend uh, I, I commend to you, I commend to you, their redankulous imperial imperial red IPA. And IPA is an India IPA, but you know that they refer to it as a no frills India pale ale, which it is, except it runs at nine point five percent alcohol by volume. Um, so I just had this sudden thought. Have I told you this before? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll battle on. Anyway, um, so three pints of Redankulous is roughly, you know, about nine schooners of Coopers. Um, so, <laughs> so, yeah, watch yourself. But it is really, really nice. That is Redankulous uh, by the Founders Brewery in Grand Rapids, Michigan. But tonight, I need to tell you, I am drinking gin. I am drinking um, a very cheap gin uh, called Old Lions London Dry Gin, which is uh, available at Liquorland for not very much. And uh, look, it oh fuck, uh, yeah, it does the job. Um, and you know, when you're thirsty like I am. Um, I suppose I better put some tonic in that. Oh, a bit more. It's it's just fine. Now I would have um, preferred to have a better gin tonight, uh, and and I could have, but I it, it would have involved logistics that were just too annoying for today. Uh, but uh, the reason I mention this uh, is, of course, that this podcast is made possible by you, the listeners, uh, and your contributions. And uh, uh, this week, there have been quite a few contributions uh, to my alcohol uh, 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 warehousing, uh, because last night, uh, Monday night this week, uh, there was a an episode of Four Corners, the ABC's flagship current affairs uh, program, about Australia's national broadband network, and I thought, oh, fuck, I don't want to watch that. And then a whole bunch of people uh, said, no, 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 I don't want to watch it. So you know, you watch it and tell us what it's like. Um, I'll pay for your drinks, and that and that kind of got out of hand. So I would like to thank at. At this stage, uh, uh, Bob Ogden, who I just realised is probably the Bob Ogden I knew from years ago. Hi, mate. Uh, Brian Smith, Chris Rockle, uh, Chris Hill, Lisa Reed, Drew Mayo, Garth Kidd, Michael Neal, Jono Ferguson, David King, uh, Josh McKinnon, who said, no, I have to get some of the local APA up here the next time. Yup DeWitt, who says, I have to get a decent wine. So, yeah, next time. And Mel Lunn saying, well, I've, what I've just bought you is a drink at your local before you go shopping because I did this whole thing on Twitter about how going shopping after you had a few drinks, you know, you end up coming back with, with four kilos of pepperoni and 15 varieties of cheese but no toilet paper. Uh, also, six anonymous people contributed contributed. Uh, to the alcohol budget for the next few episodes. Thank you very much. 
Last episode, I also forgot to thank the people who contributed to my toothocalypse. Uh, I hadn't been to the dentist for quite some time uh, when a, a, an important little uh, thing happened. Uh, he, well, I've told you this as well. He looked at me with his little puppy dog brown eyes and oh so disappointed that I hadn't got this done and then sketched out a, a work plan involving six fillings and about $2,000 worth of dental work. So I have had some contributions to that from Keith Duddy, Susan Ireland, uh, Jono again, Ben O'Rice, Colin Thompson, Paul McElwee, David King, uh, a very generous person who just called themselves uh, Toothy Goodness. I really have no idea that is. Adam Baxter and an anonymous benefactor who just went, yeah, I forgot to visit the dentist too. So there's still plenty of dental work to come. There's still plenty of podcasts to come. If you would like to be one of the the wonderful sorts of human beings to contribute to this, go to the website, uh, stilgarian.com slash uh, that's tip, Tape. I should stop being silly. Stilgarian.com slash tip, I accept. Major credit cards and the PayPal. So uh, there you go. <coughs> Elephant stamp time. Elephant stamp time. Each, oh, shut up. Each elephant of, no, each, <laughs> each episode of this podcast. Oh, elephants. Today's elephant. Yeah, I'll work on that later. Each episode of this podcast, I award elephant stamps of approval for excellence in the category of thinking. And today, one, two, three. Three seems to be the number of elephant stamps that I am issuing these days. Uh, And the first one goes to the BBC for um, sending wonderful and and highly excellent news reports to be read by the BBC TV news presenter Simon McCoy. Uh, Simon McCoy has become known for uh, just expressing his disdain uh, with the news stories put in front of him. Uh, here's one from the other day. Just uh, got this coming in from Kensington Palace, news we just got. Their Royal Highnesses, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, are delighted to confirm they are expecting a baby uh, in April. Now, bearing in mind they announced that she was pregnant back in September, and it was thought she was around two or three months pregnant. I'm not sure how much news this really is. But anyway, it's April, so clear your diaries, get the time booked off, because that's what I'm doing. And, uh, well, anyway, that news just coming in from Kensington Palace. You're watching Afternoon Live. (laughs) You can hear that he loves it. So uh, elephant stamp of approval for giving stories to Simon McCoy. Uh, By the way, if he's away, I would be available to go to Kensington Palace in April and uh, provide live coverage of the Royal Sprogging. Um, I should actually set up a possible for that, shouldn't I? Okay. Elephant stamp number two goes to the City of Sydney which this week announced that it's going to address the problem of Sydney's, quote, flagging nighttime economy. Uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot of background to this, but, but certainly an, an important part of it is that after a, a small handful of people suffered some particularly violent and nasty injuries leading to their death in the nightclub districts, I, I, I don't wish to... Um, uh, detract from the seriousness of, uh, seriousness of those crimes, but 
there was a whole, oh, my God, we've got to protect the citizens and we've got to have early closing of pubs and lockouts and things like this. Well, this had the uh, the not unpredictable uh, effect of stifling uh, the nighttime atmosphere in Sydney's tourist districts. So the city of Sydney, to fix this, has 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 launched a discussion paper which comes under the title of Sydney's Open and oh sorry the uh, an open and creative Sydney is the discussion paper open means yes open just the front doors are open and they're going to allow businesses to remain open until 10 p.m. <laughs> my god the debauchery and they've set up something called the Creative City and Nightlife Advisory Panel. So Sydney is going to solve its its terrible nighttime atmosphere by committee. Fucking hell, Cloverland is just such a stupid bloody city. I should I should get out of here. Elephant stamp to the city of Sydney. Uh, and elephant stamp number three goes to uh, – it's really kind of to Donald Trump and the entire US defence establishment because earlier this week, the other day, um, only a matter of days ago, there was uh, an exclusive story on the, the defence website Defence One uh, but here's how Fox News reported it. A Fox News alert, the U.S. Air Force preparing to put its nuclear-armed B-52 bombers on alert for the first time since the end of the Cold War as tensions escalate with North Korea. Yeah, let's get right to Ryan Chilcote, live in London with the very latest this morning. Ryan. That's right. The Air Force is taking steps to make sure that its fleet of about 76 B-52s can be ready to fly at a moment's notice. That's according to the Air Force's chief of staff. His name is General David Goldfine, and he has told Defense One, a national security website, that the U.S. is renovating Barksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana. That's where about half of our uh, B-52s are based. Uh, and he said that the infrastructure there is being prepared so that if there is such an order for that 24 hours readiness, that they can make good on it. Meanwhile, President Trump, appearing on Fox Business News this weekend, said that while he's still hopeful that China could put that pressure on Kim Jong-un to change course, the U.S. is prepared to do whatever it takes. We're prepared for anything. We are so prepared like you wouldn't believe. You would be shocked to see how totally prepared we are. On the diplomatic front, former President Jimmy Carter said he's ready to help. Jimmy Carter went to North Korea in 1994 under the Clinton administration for talks. He's told General McMaster, that's President Trump's national security advisor, that he's prepared to go should they want him to. In an interview with The New York Times, he said, so far the answer from the Trump administration has been thanks, but no thanks. Because the Trump administration has got everything under control, right? With all their experience. Ah, things. Yeah, it's great fun, isn't it? Some things about putting the B-52s back on 24-7 alert. You know, the the on on the runway, ready to roll, fueled and nuked up. I'm I'm going to uh, summarise a a 
little Twitter burst from Nuclear Anthro on Twitter, Martin Pfeiffer, who uh, is in New Mexico doing his uh, Masters in Anthropology, amongst other things, on uh, the anthropology of the early nuclear age, when atomic was good before it became nuclear, which is bad. And uh, he he kind of knows a bit about nuclear weapons uh, because of that. So he ran through this and said that the article in Defence One talked about planning being made in case uh, the US Air Force makes a decision to raise the the bomber readiness. Okay, so that's a a thing. We're not quite at uh, the bombers there uh, ready to rock and roll just yet. But Martin notes that during the Cold War, some US bombers were indeed kept loaded with nukes and ready to take off because there were fears that if uh, the Soviet Union uh, did a first strike, would would they be able to get their response nuclear forces back, you know, happening in time? Uh, and, and therefore, the idea of putting the bombers on alert um, was very important in that part of the Cold War. But... Over time, uh, as he puts it, the US nuclear force posture has changed drastically. And he says he he can't see the point of these strip alerts because strip alert bombers loaded with nukes would obviously have more wear and tear. There'd be bigger risk of nuclear weapon accidents. Uh, and in the case of a, a, a foreign policy crisis, it would add to the kind of instability of the situation because everyone would be more tense, right? I mean, fuck, you know, uh, do we need to get these things off and running? He also points out that Barksdale Air Force Base, which was the one uh, quoted in the story, doesn't actually store nuclear weapons at the moment. So there would have to be a redeployment of nukes uh, to Louisiana, to the Barksdale Air Force Base. So they'd have to take uh, air, launch, air launch cruise missiles, which, uh, you know, hang under the wings of the, the B-52, the W-80 warhead in them, or a thing called the long-range standoff missile. Again, you'd have to, to, to send them down to Louisiana. So you've got the whole moving nukes around thing. Um, then you've got the issue that... Uh, if you've got some of your B-52s loaded with nukes and sitting there on the runway, well, that means you haven't got as many available for conventional bombing missions. And as you may have noticed, the United States uh, is involved in some you know, wars and shit at the moment. Add on top of that, if the B-52 is taking off from that Air Force base and coming towards you, how do you know whether it's conventional weapons or nuclear weapons you know, you don't, so how would you respond? Surely a, uh, I was about to say cautious, a prudent or a more paranoid uh, regime might think, fuck, they're sending nukes at us, we better respond. Uh, and then there's the the other issue that there is the the START treaty, New START, the not New START, the Australian Unemployment Benefits, but the new START treaty, the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, where there are actually limits on the number of ready nukes that that the participants can have. And obviously the United States is one of those. So if a B-52 or the, the supersonic B-2 bomber can carry, let's say, 12 to 20 or more nuclear warheads, what 
gets reduced? Do you pull out the intercontinental ballistic missiles? Do you pull out submarines or whatever? What's the, you know, what, what do you actually do with this? Um, and uh, Martin points to a couple of uh, lovely little things. And again, uh, once uh, we get the webpage up, you'll have um, pictures of these. That it was a, a decision matrix uh, that uh, the commander-in-chief of the uh, Strategic Air Command, or uh, well, well, this was the matrix he had to follow. And this was sort of done as a bit of dark humour. But you've really got four possible... Um, Outcomes, four possible situations, I mean. Either a Soviet attack is underway or it's not. Uh, and the Commander-in-Chief of SAC, Strategic Air Command, can choose, well, do I launch the bombers or not? Now, we spoke about this kind of thing a little in uh, the last episode, so go back and have a listen to that at this point. Press pause now. So now that you've listened to that, let's have a look at these options. Let's say you're the uh, the US commander of SAC and there are indications that there might be a Soviet attack underway or in this case, North Korean. So let's say you assume that they're attacking, so you launch the bombers. Basically, you get nuked, they get nuked. You're a hero, but you're dead. Uh Let's say that you did launch the bombers, but in fact there was no uh, attack underway. Well, at the very best, you're going to be court-martialed because you just duked another country when you didn't need to. Uh, you probably, uh, that's your personal <laughs> issue there. Screw the rest of the world. Okay, so let's say you don't launch the bombers. Uh, if there is a Soviet attack underway or a North Korean attack underway, and you don't launch the bombers, well, you're both dead and a bum, as this points out. And and the, the neutral one is, well, there's no attack and no, you know, you don't launch the bombers, so everything just sits where it is. This is, um, this is an interesting decision matrix when you look at the rationality of uh, the people involved. Now, in the last episode, I, I did also talk about the, um, the situation in 1983 when the war scare was real, and uh, Martin uh, cites a bit, of, uh, a bit of documentation from, oh, I won't go into the whole uh, jargon about this, but uh, it's, it's a document from uh, the war scare in February 1990 beforehand and some declassified in, uh, US reports. But it said, yes, this was real, that the United States, quote, may have inadvertently placed our relations with the Soviet Union on a hair trigger during that exercise I spoke about, the uh, NATO exercise uh, Able Archer 83, 83, I should say. Yes, sorry, not the 90s. This document is from 1990. Able Archer was 1983 at uh, the second height of the Cold War. Uh, this document said uh, that uh, compelling the Soviets to consider a preemptive strike at the first sign of US preparations for a nuclear strike, that's what made this really tense. But fortunately, quote, the military officers in charge of the Able Archer exercise minimised the risk by doing nothing in face of evidence that parts of the Soviet armed forces were moving to an unusual level of alert. Uh, and... Uh, 
that that comes down to luck. Last time uh, in this in this podcast, I spoke about how um, a Soviet officer thought, no, this isn't the first strike, so didn't escalate things. But at the same time, that able archer exercise did uh, raise things to, as the report puts it, a hair trigger. So uh, Martin Pfeiffer's point was that uh, launching those strip aircraft, if we do put the B-50, or we, not we, I'm not American, if the Americans do put those uh, aircraft back on strip alert, an ambiguous warning, especially during some sort of crisis uh, situation, could indeed result in, quote, dangerous and unintended escalation. Speaking of uh, unintended escalation, I did love that Less than an hour after the Defence One story was posted, it it the story had already morphed from it being an intention to put, uh, how shall I put it, an intention to make preparations to put uh, the B-52s on alert. The story in less than an hour had become that the B-52s were now on 24-7 alert. That's how quickly the news media can make things wrong. Okay, that was on day one of the story, but here's day two of the story. The US Air Force has denied reports that it has put nuclear bombers back on a 24-hour alert for the first time since the end of the Cold War in 1991. Wait, what? Denied. So what actually happened? Uh, According to Breaking Defence, another defence website, they were talking, in fact, about not putting the bombers on alert but just upgrading the kind of alert equipment and processes so that should they want to do this way down the track, it would be available to them. You've got to love the media these days, don't you? And speaking of loving the media, Sean Hannity, one of my favourites, your favourite American uh, commentators on Fox, uh, of course. He, uh, on the 11th of October, got a a live with an audience exclusive interview with uh, Donald Trump. And here's just uh, a section of that when Trump uh, talks about the, the current situation. We cannot allow this to happen. This should have been taken care of long ago. Uh, Clinton gave them billions of dollars, gave them lots of other things. And before the contract, the ink was dry on the contract, they were already starting again with the missiles and with the nuclear, frankly. So we are in a position, look, we're very strong. I really, I'm building up the military like nobody's ever seen. We're close to $800 billion in spending. The word, I don't know if you know, but the military, our military was totally, you know, really depleted. Uh, you look around and you see what's going on. You take a look at what we're buying right now with the jet fighters and all of the equipment we're buying. And, you know, it's two things, really. It is jobs, and that's far less important. But we build the greatest military equipment in the world. We have missiles that can knock out a missile in the air 97% of the time. And if you send two of them, it's going to get knocked out. Is it fair to say if he keeps firing missiles, that's going to end? Well, I don't want to say anything. I don't want to say anything. I'm just telling you, I don't want to talk about it because, you know, all these people, they talk. I remember when you said, I remember with Mosul and, you know, I use this all the time with Mosul. 
we are going to be attacking Mosul in four months. We're attacking Mosul in three months. Until I say, why do they keep saying it? Attack, do it or don't do it or whatever. But they kept talking about it. And by the way, it turned out to be hell on wheels. It was hard because they were so totally prepared. And I'm not saying I'm doing anything and I'm not saying I'm not. But we shouldn't be talking about it. Calm before the storm. You're not going to talk about that. No, either. I don't talk about it. No. Iran. It was interesting. Trump goes on to uh, talk about Iran, and uh, his views are obviously interesting. But I want to pick up a point there, uh, and I'm now going to uh, quote from uh, an article at a, a website, a blog and podcast setup that I, I really do appreciate called War on the Rocks. The headline of this piece was Deadly Overconfidence. Trump thinks missile defences work against North Korea, and that should scare you. So Trump, as you heard, said we have missiles that can knock out a missile in the air 97% of the time. And you send two of them, it's going to get knocked out. Well, if Trump believes that or is being told that, say the writers of this piece, that American missile defences are that accurate, not only is he factually wrong, he is also very dangerously wrong. This misperception could be enough to lead the United States into a costly war with devastating consequences. In other words, if Trump believes that the missile defences work, he might actually think that a first strike attempt to disarm North Korea of its nuclear forces would successfully spare American cities from retaliation. They probably wouldn't, say the authors. Believing that each ground-based mid-course missile defence interceptor, the GMDs, can provide anything close to a 97% interception rate, uh, they call, well, they say it raises the temptation to attempt the so-called splendid first strike. The splendid first strike. There was another report. Uh, this week that said if there was such a preemptive war against North Korea, there'd be about a million dead people on the first day. So uh, an elephant stamp to uh, <laughs> President John Donald Trump. Uh, but also I award him a hallucinating goldfish. He really doesn't understand this, does he? And he's forgetting the um, errands of the past. Vive la poissons rouge sauvage, all hail Eris and duck and cover. Well, that's all the edict for now. As usual, there'll be notes on the podcast page at stillgarian.com. If you'd like to keep these podcasts going, you know what to do. Open your wallet. Go to stillgarian.com slash tip. Put in all the numbers. The bigger the numbers, the better. The next episode will be whenever I feel like it. Until then, I'm still Gary. Have a good one. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.